Well, indeed, as it's already been mentioned this morning, it is with heavy hearts that we have watched the events unfold in Ukraine this week. We grieve because we know that war always has casualties. War always takes lives. And so we must pray for Ukraine, pray for the surrounding nations, and pray for our brothers and sisters in Christ who are seeking to be a bold witness for Jesus in the midst of such turmoil. I bring that up this morning, not only because it is making headline news around the world, but because it reminds us of the nature of war. It reminds us that in a war, everyone must choose a side. As tanks and troops are rolling into Ukraine, the people there are having to make a choice. Do they stand with Russia? Do they stand with Ukraine? There's no middle ground. They must pick whether they are going to surrender or whether they're going to fight back. And this reminds us that the same is true in a spiritual battle. That there is no neutrality, there is no middle ground when it comes to the spiritual war between good and evil, between light and darkness. And friends, this is a battle that each one of us are in, and each one of us are on a side. This is a war that has raged ever since Satan rebelled against his creator. And since Adam and Eve fell in the garden at Satan's tempting, mankind has had to make a choice. Either he stands with God or stands with his enemy. And as we'll see in our text today, the same was true in Jesus' day, and it is true for us today too. We each have to pick sides. Joshua told his generation in Joshua 24, he told them, choose this day whom you will serve. The question is before us as well. Who will we serve? Will it be Christ definitively and consciously? Or will we neglect and ignore Jesus or oppose him and therefore be on the side of Satan? Friends, there is no neutrality in this war. There are no spiritual Switzerlands. Either you stand with Christ or you will be against him. And our text this morning will force us to make a choice. And the choice we do make will have eternal consequences. So I invite you to open your personal copy of God's Word to Luke chapter 11. If you're not there already, Luke chapter 11. For the last several sections, Jesus has been teaching his disciples and by implication us, as Luke has recorded it, some positive lessons on what it means to be a disciple some positive instruction on what it means to follow him. In chapter 10, verses 25 through 37, in the parable of the great good Samaritan, he taught us to love the Lord our God by caring for those in need. Then in chapter 10, verses 38 through 42, he taught us that the way of a disciple is primarily one of listening to his word, like Mary did, and not one of frenetic activity and busyness like Martha. And then as we saw the last two weeks in chapter 11, verses 1 through 13, the way of a disciple 
is to pray and depend upon Jesus' Father in heaven because he's a Father who's willing and generous to give to those who ask. But now, as we turn to verse 14 in Luke 11, there's a shift. It turns from this positive instruction, positive lessons on being a disciple, to the further instruction on being a disciple, but it turns to more the negative. Jesus, rather, rather than giving uh, positive instructions on being a disciple, it now comes in the context of controversy. Jesus is being opposed by the nation and by the religious leaders. He goes into disputes with the Jewish people. And it's through these disputes, through this controversy, that Jesus has further lessons to teach his disciples and to teach us by implication. So this morning, we're going to look at verses 14 through 23. So I invite you to follow as I read those verses. Luke 11, beginning in verse 14. It says, Now he was casting out a demon that was mute, When the demon had gone out, the mute man spoke, and the people marveled. But some of them said, He cast out demons by Beelzebub, the prince of demons, while others, to test him, kept seeking from him a sign from heaven. But he, knowing their thoughts, said to them, Every kingdom divided against itself is laid waste, and a divided household falls. And if Satan also is divided against himself, how will his kingdom stand? For you say, I cast out demons by Beelzebul. And if I cast out demons by Beelzebul, by whom do your sons cast them out? Therefore they will be your judges. But if it is by the finger of God that I cast out demons, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. When a strong man fully armed guards his own palace, his goods are safe. But when one stronger than he attacks him and overcomes him, he takes away his armor in which he trusted and divides his spoil. Whoever is not with me is against me, and whoever does not gather with me scatters. This text this morning will drive home the point to us that there is no neutrality in the great spiritual war. Either you stand with Jesus or you stand with Satan. There is no middle ground. Each of us will be forced to evaluate our own allegiance as this text presses us, presses four questions upon us. Four questions. So four questions, friends, that you need to answer. And the first question we're forced to ask is this. Do you believe Jesus performed miracles? Do you believe Jesus performed miracles? Look at verse 14. It says, Now he was casting out a demon that was mute. And when the demon had gone out, the mute man spoke, and the people marveled. Now, before we dive into this narrative, I need to first address a question that relates to this whole passage. There are passages in the other synoptic gospels, Matthew and Mark, that describe a similar incident. And so the question is whether all of these speak of the same incident or whether they're different incidences. The two main positions are, number one, that Matthew and Mark describe a different event that took place a year earlier in Galilee, whereas this that Luke records takes place uh, in Judea. This is based upon where this event is placed in Luke in comparison with the other Gospels. The second position is that they all speak about the same event, and they place them in their Gospel depending on the thematic needs as they put together their Gospel. And Both positions are possible. Both of them affirm the 
veracity of God's word. I tend to lean in the second position that they all speak of some similar event because the similarities are so great. But again, both are possible and neither one really affects the interpretation of our text. But Luke begins this account by telling about a miracle that Jesus performs. The casting out of a demon. Demons are another name for fallen angels. There are two classes of angels. There's evil and good angels. And the evil angels are also known in the Bible as demons or unclean spirits. They all speak of the same thing. These demons, these fallen angels, do the bidding of Satan, their leader. Now this demon, it says that when they entered the man, it caused the man to cease from speaking. He, it destroyed his ability to speak. The man was mute. Now, once again, we see here that the purpose of Satan and his demons is to destroy God's image bearers. Ever since Satan's attack upon Adam and Eve in the garden, he's been trying to attack mankind, the image bearers of God, in order to get at God himself. Because we bear the image of God, Satan has been trying to thwart the plan of God and to seek to keep mankind from fulfilling their purpose. And so it seems that when a a demon invades a person, based upon the information we have in the Gospels, that this this image of God in them seems to be affected. They're, They're shut down in a certain way. They can't communicate. They can't speak. Sometimes they can't hear. Sometimes they can't see. Sometimes it's their rationality and their sanity that's gone. And the If this text is a parallel with Matthew 12, Matthew there records that the the man was both mute and blind. Luke only mentions the muteness, but the point is not how bad the demon was oppressing the man. The point is what Jesus did with the demon. The fact is that Jesus cast it out. Now, the miracle listed here is almost said in a nonchalant way, isn't it? It's almost like he rushes past it. Uh, He he says, no, he, he was casting out a demon that was mute, and the demon had gone out, and the man spoke, and... It kind of moves on from there. But we can't miss this reality that Jesus cast out this demon and the people that saw it marveled. They recognized exactly what had gone on. There was no doubt in their minds what Jesus did. They were amazed. They marveled. Now for some of them, this marveling was positive. For others, it wasn't so positive. It was mixed. For others, they flat out disliked what they saw. Now, you might say, how can it say that he mar- they marveled, but they disliked what they saw? Well, we can do that all the time. We can be amazed at something and yet not necessarily enjoy it. It made me think of sports. Maybe there's a certain athlete that you can be amazed at, but you don't necessarily like that athlete. For me, it's Tom Brady. <laughs> I was amazed at all he could do on the football field. I have to give him credit and respect for all that he did, but I don't like the guy. He was a patriot. And a number of other reasons. But the point is, people can marvel at something and yet not necessarily like it. And that's what's going on here. They marvel. They go, wow, that's amazing. But they, in their heart of hearts, don't like what they see. But it's important to note that this crowd didn't uh, second guess what they saw. They didn't deny the miracle. They saw what happened and could do nothing other than marvel at the legitimate display of the power that they saw come through Jesus. And this is important because today, many people operate out of a materialistic worldview in which supernatural events such as the casting out of demons is absolutely precluded. This can't happen because things can't break the laws of nature, so to speak. 
They have no category for the supernatural, for something happening by a being stronger outside of our material universe. And so therefore, they believe that miracles can't happen. And yet the repeated testimony of the Bible is that miracles can and do take place. They were real events in which Jesus and others, through the power of God, brought about changes in people's lives and in the natural order. So the first question that confronts us in this text is, do you believe Jesus performed miracles? you got to start there. The rest of the passage doesn't make sense, and it doesn't actually put any force upon you if we don't recognize what the original audience recognized, which was legitimate power coming through Jesus and the casting out of a demon. But there's a second question the text forces us to ask. It's, do you believe Jesus was empowered by Satan or the Spirit? Do you believe Jesus was empowered by Satan or the Spirit? And we're going to see this as we examine the crowd's response and then Jesus' defense. First, the crowd's response. We see the crowd respond to this miracle in two ways. Again, we see that they marveled in verse 14. But in verse 15, it says, But some of them said, He casts out demons by Beelzebul, the prince of demons. While others, to test him, kept seeking from him a sign from heaven. Two different responses. Both of them reflect an unbelief of the heart. The first is an accusation that Jesus' power was satanic. They say he casts out demons by Beelzebul, the prince of demons. This is a designation for Satan. He had the command of fallen angels, of demons. And therefore, the prince of demons here is recognizing the one who is in charge of demons. The name derives from the Canaanite deity Baal or Baal that we see in the Old Testament. In 2 Kings 2 verse 1, we see him called Baal Zebub, which means Lord of the Flies, which seems to be an Israelite uh, twist on what was probably his original name, Baal Zebul, which means Baal the Prince. In Jesus' day, they seem to have used this title to speak of Satan, the devil. They are not questioning the power. They're questioning where the power comes from. And they simply make the accusation that he's in league with Satan. That Jesus is really Satan's emissary. And they recognize here there's no middle ground. It's either God or Satan. There's not like this middle ground where it could be something else. They either have to attribute his works to God or to the devil. And they chose the latter. Now this is characteristic for them and and Luke 7, we saw that they accused John the Baptist as having a demon. But here they go even farther. to not to say that Jesus has a demon, but that he himself is empowered or indwelt by Satan himself. So the first response is one of absolute unbelief that rejects Christ completely. They don't want any accountability for what Jesus is saying. They want to dismiss him offhand and say, whatever he teaches, whatever he says, I don't have to listen to him because he's in league with the devil. In other words, it's their unbelief and their love of their sin that causes them to vilify Jesus. They want to be justified in rejecting him, and so they vilify him in order to do so. Now, the second response looks a little more harmless, right? Verse 16. While others, to test him, kept seeking from him a sign from heaven. But this response is just as damning as the first. They don't have any more faith than the first group does. 
They ask for a sign from heaven, it says. This could mean that they're looking for a cosmic display of something, for stars to fall out of the sky, for maybe the sun to stand still, like it happened in Joshua's day. You know, God, you know, it's so close. I'm almost there. I'll believe in you if you can just do something really amazing. I know you cast out a demon, but I just need a little something more. You know, could... Can you make it a little bit grander scale for me? And then, and then I'll believe. They want something dramatic. They want to be impressed. But do you see that their unbelief has led them to see that Jesus' miracles, that this isn't his first one. He's already done many, many more. And yet they lead, this, their unbelief leads them to see his miracles as insufficient. And this is inexcusable. They find an excuse for their unbelief by saying they haven't seen enough. Friends, aren't these two responses evident today even? People find some way to dismiss Jesus. They either move him into the category of the detestable, find some way that they hate him, or they make him irrelevant, claim that they haven't seen enough to prove his existence. But both of these responses show unbelief. In reality, the world today has all the proof that they need through the Word of God. In fact, you'll remember the story in Luke 16 where there's a rich man, Lazarus, right? And the rich man dies and goes to hell and he wants relief as he's there in hell. And he sees Abraham up in heaven and he calls out to Abraham for some relief. Abraham says, sorry, I can't do that. And the man then says to Abraham, he says, I beg you, Father, to send Lazarus to my father's house, for I have five brothers, so that he may warn them, lest they also come into this place of torment. But Abraham said, they have Moses and the prophets, let them hear them. And he said, no, Father Abraham, but if someone goes to them from the dead, they will repent. And he said to him, if they do not hear Moses and the prophets, neither will they be convinced if someone should rise from the dead. Friends, the Word of God is powerful enough for us to see all that we need to know about Jesus and about His purpose and about our call to believe in Him. We don't need cosmic signs. He's given us the cosmic signs. He's given us the greatest signs we need in His Word. So we see the crowd's response. Secondly, let's look at Jesus' defense. Verse 17 it says, he, knowing their thoughts, then said to them, every kingdom divided against itself is laid waste, and a divided household falls. Jesus, being sovereign, knows what they're thinking and knows what they're saying to one another. They might be whispering to one another, but he knows what's going on. And so he's able to respond to them very directly. He first gives this principle in verse 17, and then in 18 through 20, he then gives three successive statements that are identified by the and if or but if clauses. First, the principle, every kingdom divided against itself is laid waste and a divided household falls. Very simple principle, that when there's division in the king's domain, that his kingdom will topple and fall. Division brings destruction. This is why Abraham Lincoln used this very phrase in his statement in his House Divided speech as a senatorial candidate in 1858 to speak about the division within America at the time over the issue of slavery. Division leads to destruction. 
Jesus then takes this principle and begins to defend his ministry by pointing out the hypocrisy of his opponents. Verse 18, he first shows them that their argument is illogical. Their argument is illogical. Look at it, verse 18. And if Satan also is divided against himself, how will his kingdom stand? For you say, I cast out demons by Beelzebul. He's saying, listen, Satan can't be attacking himself. He, he's not going to be looking to destroy his own work. He sent his demons into people in order for those demons to wreak their havoc. Why would he then reverse his very work? This doesn't make any sense. It's illogical. On top of that, he turns in verse 19 to say, not only is their, is their accusation illogical, but it's inconsistent. Look at verse 19. And if I cast out demons by Beelzebul, by whom do your sons cast them out? Therefore, they will be your judges. They say Jesus casts out demons by Satan's power. Yet they want to say that their sons cast out demons by God's power. And Jesus says, you can't have it both ways. If demons are coming out, they're coming out by the same power. Now, this verse, it says, your sons cast them out. And it's hard to pin down who exactly Jesus is referring to here. It could refer to some Jewish exorcists that are operating in Israel at the time. In Luke chapter 9, verse 46, we heard of someone other than the disciples who was casting out a demon. In Acts 19, there's a group of Jew Jewish exorcists that are mentioned there as well. And so it could be just others who are involved in this work during this time. And in other words, when he says that these, your sons will be your judges, he's saying, go ask them. What's going to be their evaluation of your accusation if you're calling my power satanic? He's saying, based upon their own exercise activity, what will they think of your comment? In other words, they're going to find you inconsistent as well. Others identify the sons of the, your sons who cast out demons as a reference to the disciples. And saying, Jesus is saying, listen, if I cast out demons this way, what are you going to say about your sons? Your, the, the Israelites, the, your, your very own brothers who are here. And the judgment that he references, they will be your judges, references the end times when they will judge over the house of Israel and ultimately judge this generation for their unbelief. Both views are possible, and either way you see it, they lead, that we get Jesus' point, right? He's calling out their inconsistency and saying that they can't have it both ways. They can't have those that they like casting out demons and say it's by God's power and then point to Jesus and say, no, his power is satanic. And so Jesus then drives his point home in verse 20. But if it is by the finger of God that I cast out demons, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. In essence, Jesus is saying, if the source of my power is God, then I am the rightful messianic king, and you should believe in me this instant. In the parallel passage, Matthew records Jesus is saying that it's by, he does these miracles by the Spirit of God. But curiously here, he says, if I cast out demons by the finger of God. An interesting phrase. I believe that Jesus here is making a deliberate reference to the Exodus. To the ten plagues shown before Egypt. 
in Exodus. After the first two plagues, first two plagues were the turning the water, in, uh, water into blood and the bringing of the frogs out of the Nile, the magicians, the Egyptian magicians, were able to do the same by their secret arts, it says in the text. But after the third plague, after the bringing of gnats, as it's often translated, Exodus 8 verse 19 says this. It says, Then the magician said to Pharaoh, This is the finger of God. But Pharaoh's heart was hardened, and he would not listen to them as the Lord had said. I believe Jesus, by saying, if I do perform these miracles, if I cast out demons by the finger of God, he's referencing back to this very account, to this verse. And he's doing two things by alluding to it. First, he's saying amazingly that the power he is exhibiting is on equal power with the power displayed in the ten plagues of the Exodus. This is the, all, the power of Almighty God. This is a powerful argument for us. It's powerful for the Jews because the Exodus was their salvation story. This is like how they were redeemed was by the mighty power of God who saved them from Egypt. And Jesus is saying now, I am exerting that very same power. I am the God who brought you out of Egypt. Therefore, something just as significant is happening now through Jesus. He is leading his people in a new exodus, this time not out of slavery, but out of exile, out of spiritual exile. The second thing Jesus is doing by alluding to this verse, I believe he could also be identifying the crowd before him with hardened Pharaoh. Remember this verse, it says that the finger of God is the one that did these miracles, but then Pharaoh's heart was hardened. Just as... God worked in almighty ways before Pharaoh, and Pharaoh failed to see it. So too, this generation is witnessing the same almighty power of God, and they're failing to recognize it and failing to believe their hearts are hardened. And Jesus will drive this point home throughout the rest of this chapter that this generation is failing to see what God wants them to see. They're a wicked generation. Now, Jesus' punchline is that he connects the power of God showed in his miracles with the kingdom of God. So let's first look at the connection between miracles and the kingdom, and then we'll look in what sense the kingdom has come or arrived, as this verse says. The New Testament, New Testament makes it clear time and again that in fulfillment of the Old Testament prophecies, the miracles performed by Jesus designated him as the messianic king. You remember Isaiah 35 predicted, it says, Then the eyes of the blind shall be opened, the ears of the deaf, deaf unstopped, and then shall the lame man leap like a deer, and the tongue of the mute sing for joy. This was the prophecy of what would happen in the messianic kingdom. And so, you remember when John the Baptist was in prison, and he's wondering, listen, I'm the forerunner to the king, to the Messiah, and now I'm in prison. Jesus, are you really the one? Because I was expecting a grander display. I was expecting victory. And so these messengers come to Jesus and ask this question. And Jesus says, hold on a minute. And then look at what it says he does. In that hour, he healed many people of diseases and plagues and evil spirits. And on many whom were blind, he bestowed sight. He does all these miracles. And he turns back to those messengers of John the Baptist. And he says, go and tell John what you have seen and heard. 
the blind receive their sight, the lame walk, the lepers are cleansed, and the deaf hear, the dead are raised up, the poor of good news preach to them, and blessed is the one who is not offended by me. In other words, when asked for his identification, what does he pull out of his wallet? He slaps down the table as miracles. and says, see, that's who I am. This should be clear to all that I am the king. I'm the promised messianic king. He's reversing the signs of the curse of sin. He's restoring creation. He's bringing about these kingdom conditions of a renewed earth. They're glimpses of the kingdom. And so in what sense then, if the king has been doing these signs, what does it mean when he says that the kingdom of God has come upon you? Well, I think we must understand this in this sense. The, the kingdom has come in that the king had come. The king was in their midst. He was manifesting the power of the kingdom. Therefore, in the presence and ministry of the king, the kingdom had arrived in its glimpses before them. But as we take this statement that says the kingdom of God has come upon you, we must take it in balance with other statements in the Gospels. Because we need to recognize that at this time, Jesus is not reigning and ruling from a throne, as was promised in the Old Testament. In order for the kingdom to be established, Jesus had to sit upon the Davidic throne, in which he's not doing at this time. Jesus himself identified when he would sit on that throne, though. He didn't leave us any doubt. Matthew 25, verse 31 says, When the Son of Man comes in his glory and all the angels with him, then he will sit on his glorious throne. It's in that future day when the Son of Man returns. Jesus, speaking from earth, says that when I come back, I'll sit upon my glorious throne. Matthew 19, 28 says something similar about the timing of Jesus' reign upon the throne. He says, Truly I say to you, speaking to his disciples, in the new world, when the Son of Man will sit on his glorious throne, you who have followed me will also sit on 12 thrones, judging the 12 tribes of Israel. He says it's in the new world, in the regeneration, when all things are made new, is when I will sit upon my glorious throne. We also see here that the kingdom had not arrived in the sense that Jesus was defeating all of his enemies. He wasn't there with a sword and with fire, seeking to destroy all those who opposed him. Isaiah 24 predicted that when the Lord of hosts reigns in Jerusalem, then on that day the Lord will punish the host of heaven in heaven and the kings of the earth on the earth. There will be a day of judgment when Jesus Christ returns and he sits upon his throne. The kingdom, we also know that the kingdom had not arrived in its full fullness here in Luke 11 because a few chapters later in Luke 19, he says this, as they, the disciples, heard these things, he proceeded to tell them a parable because he was near to Jerusalem and because they supposed that the kingdom of God was to appear immediately. The disciples were like, sweet, we're going to Jerusalem. The kingdom of God is going to like burst open. Jesus is going to defeat his enemies. We're about to be in the kingdom. And Jesus says, hold on, guys. Let's pull over the side of the road before we get there and let me tell you a parable. He tells a parable about a nobleman who goes away. And then he comes back and he receives his kingdom when he returns. A clear indication that it's when Jesus returns to earth that he receives his kingdom and his kingdom comes in full. The other thing to realize is for him to say that the kingdom of God has come upon you, who's he speaking to? 
He's speaking virtually to his adversaries. He's speaking to the scribes, the Pharisees, the unbelieving Israel. And yet in John chapter 3, it says that who, will, who are those who will enter the kingdom? It's those who are born again. There has to be spiritual renewal before the kingdom, someone can enter the kingdom. It's a physical kingdom entered through a spiritual door. These people hearing this hadn't entered that spiritual door yet. But they were witnessing the manifestation of the kingdom. Jesus was showing his amazing power and miracles so that they would place their trust in him and believe in him. There's some that would look to this verse and say that the kingdom has come already. That Jesus inaugurated or started his kingdom when he pronounced these words or through his earthly ministry. But based upon the statements that we've seen in the Gospels, that can't be true. He's not upon that throne. He's not reigning in his kingdom yet. Now today, we are citizens of the coming kingdom. We have been transferred from the domain of darkness into the kingdom of his beloved son. We have new citizenship. We are card-carrying members of the coming kingdom. And we will enter that kingdom when it arrives because we have been regenerated by the Spirit. And so even though the kingdom program has begun because the king showed up and that we can change our citizenship now, we await the arrival of the kingdom for the return of the king. But here's the point of this section, friends. Israel, that day, should have seen the finger of God working through Jesus. They should have fallen on their knees before him in worship. They should have received him as their king. They should have received him in faith, but they didn't. They instead attributed his works to Satan. They had actually shown themselves to be on Satan's side instead of on God's side. And that forces us to realize and to ask the very same question. What do we do with Jesus' power? Is it legitimately God's power working through him? Do you believe that when Jesus performed the miracles that he did, that it was truly God's power working through him, that he was God's representative? Will you acknowledge in faith that Jesus truly showed the power of God? Or will you deny it or brush it off or explain it away? Or will you ignore it? The evidence is overwhelming that Jesus, that in Jesus, God sent his son and he is the rightful king of this earth and we all owe our allegiance to him. But there's a third question this text forces us to answer. Thirdly, do you believe that Jesus is stronger than Satan? Do you believe Jesus is stronger than Satan? Again, we're talking about a, a cosmic epic battle that's going on here and you've got to choose your hero. You've got to choose the one that's going to win in the end. And so you've got to decide, you've got to know who's the stronger one. Who's the one that's ultimately going to win the day? Jesus makes it clear that he is the one who is stronger in this contest. Look at verses 21 and 22. When a strong man, fully armed, guards his own palace, his goods are safe. But when one stronger than he attacks him and overcomes him, he takes away his armor in which he trusted and divides his spoil. Jesus begins by telling sort of a parable here, talking about someone who's, who's in their strong house, right? It's, you kind of think of a landowner, wealthy landowner who's got somewhat of a, of a big house, maybe England. It's kind of a castle-like house of a palace, and he can, he can set up guards, and he can kind of protect himself, wall himself in, and, and find protection in his, in his home. And it says that he's safe. He's got his armor. He's got his weapons. He's fully armed. 
And he's content. His goods are safe. He's safe. He's invincible until a stronger one comes along. The stronger man, it says, attacks him, overtakes him, takes his armor, and then divides his spoil. The victory is complete. It's not a partial victory. It's a complete victory. And so the identification of these two men are clear. Satan is the strong man who thinks he's all good. And then Jesus comes and attacks him and fully vanquishes him. He overtakes Satan. Now, there are those who try to identify every part of this this comparison and say, well, what does Satan's palace mean? And what does uh, his army mean? And what uh, what does it mean that Jesus divides a spoil? What's the spoil he takes from Satan? And it's a spoil that Satan took from humans, and then Satan has, and then Jesus took it from him, and now Jesus is dividing it up. And what is that? And I don't think these details are given in order for us to see it as an allegory in which every single piece of it equates to something. I think the point of the details is to show the complete superiority Jesus has over Satan. Jesus does not wrestle with Satan and barely win. There is not this long protracted struggle and we're crossing our fingers hoping that Jesus wins the day. No, Jesus comes in and the victory is decisive. It's absolute. I believe that what we should take away from this little parable here is to, number one, see the superiority of Jesus. That he's always superior in his power over Satan. And secondly, is that every time we read of Jesus casting out demons, we're to see the dominance of Jesus over satanic powers. We're to see that every casting out of a demon is a display of Jesus' dominance. This is what Jesus is trying to say here. He's trying to say, listen, every time someone is overtaken by a demon, I come in and I overtake him and I cast out that demon and I show myself to be the stronger one every single time. This passage does, is not necessarily speaking about Satan's ultimate deliverance or ultimate destruction, rather. We know that he will ultimately be defeated. This passage that was talking about Jesus' strength through his miracle ministry. But it foreshadows Satan's ultimate destruction. Because Jesus is the stronger one, he will ultimately have the final say. As Revelation makes clear, Satan will be defeated. And so the question before us is, do you believe Jesus is stronger than Satan? Again, you might think it's a simple question. But it's a question we all have to answer. Is Jesus truly the victor? Is he truly the stronger one? Do you believe that Jesus will have the ultimate victory? That at the end of days, that when everything is finally said and done, that Satan will be in the lake of fire for all of eternity and that Jesus will be the one upon his throne for all of eternity? Do you believe that Jesus ultimately wins? These questions that have been coming up through this text, lead us to the final question this morning in verse 23. The final question for us this morning is, will you side with Jesus? Will you side with Jesus? Jesus ends his statements here by saying, verse 23, Whoever is not with me is against me, and whoever does not gather with me scatters.
He is bringing his listeners to a decisive deciding point. They, there's no neutrality. They can't choose the middle ground and say, well, Jesus, I'm still figuring things out. I'm still thinking things through. I'm kind of standing between you and Satan and uh, I'll make my decision soon. He's saying, no, if you're not with me, you're against me. If you don't stand up right now and say, yes, Jesus, I'm with you, then you're actually against me and you're on the side of Satan. Jesus makes the issues black and white. They must either acknowledge him and identify with the kingdom of God or remain in the kingdom of Satan. There's no middle ground. He says, if you're not with me, you're against me. And then he says the curious phrase is, whoever does not gather with me scatters. Seems to be seems to generally referencing that either you're working with Jesus to gather people in, whether you see it as a harvest or some see it as gathering up sheep like a shepherd. But either way, you're working with Jesus to bring people into the kingdom, to, to tell them about who Jesus is. Or he says you're scattering. You're actually doing work against Christ. I think of family work day and you're trying to rake up leaves, right? You're trying to bring them all together and, and then you're just about to get that pile finished and then the kids run through and kick off all the leads and they scatter everywhere, right? Jesus says, either you're working with me to bring all this, bring people together, bring people into the kingdom, or you are scattering, you're destroying, you're working against my work. Friends, just as Jesus brings his audience to a deciding point, so he brings us to a deciding point today. Every single soul listening to my voice, whether online or here in person, you have to make a call of whether you stand with Jesus or not. Either you will listen to him, confess him as Lord, repent of your sin, and follow him wholeheartedly, or any other option, ignore him, tacitly say you follow him, but not truly obey him, or flat out reject him, and you're taking the side of Satan. There's no neutrality. Many people go along today trying to ignore Jesus. They try to pass off the message of the Bible and everything along with it as old-fashioned, as not relevant for today. But friends, it is God who will have the last laugh. He is the one in charge of history. He's the one that created this entire universe, and he was the one that brings history to its conclusion, which includes the judgment for all those who disobey and reject his son. If you do not explicitly confess Christ, repent of your sins, and bow the knee before him, you will be against him. And when he comes again, he comes with fire and with a sword to judge all those who are not with him. Friends, there's no excuse. As we said earlier, we have the word of God. We know exactly what it says. We know who he is. There is no excuse for not being clear on where you stand. I fear for some of you. You have heard the truth numerous times, and yet you're complacent, or you claim to be in some sort of neutral ground where you think you're still figuring things out. Folks, be clear that if you try to stand on that neutral ground, you're not with Christ, and therefore you are against him. Others of you, 
claim to follow Jesus. You confess it externally. And yet, by your lives and your choices, you're living in habitual unrepentant sin. That is not showing one who is following Jesus. That is showing someone who is rather following a different leader. Following unbelief. Following Satan. The question before you is, which side are you on? And I ask the question before you because both sides are open to you today. If you know that you have not been with Christ, I am not pushing you away from him. I'm trying to encourage you to come to him today. He is the only savior for sinful humanity. All of us are sinners. We show living proof of that every single day. There is no other place for you to turn but to Jesus Christ. To stand with him. You say, I don't have what it takes. And he says, I know. That's why I was crucified for your sin. That's why I sent my spirit. Turn to me and be saved. Friends, if you find yourself in unbelief, if you find yourself hardened, if you find yourself away from Christ, don't turn farther away from him. Turn to him today. Today is a day of salvation. Today is a day of grace and of God's patience to you. You do not know what tomorrow brings. You do not know if that grace will extend. But you know today you're living and breathing. You can make the choice today. Do not presume upon God's kindness another minute. Side with Jesus today that you might know where you're, you are for all of eternity. That you are with Christ and that you stand with life. You stand with the King who will rule in righteousness. Stand with Jesus the only Savior for your soul. Stand with Jesus, the true hero and victor of history. We must stand and side with Christ. Do that not only in our beliefs, in our confession of our mouth, but also with our behavior. We show that with our lives, that he is Lord over us. And so there's no neutrality with Christ, but know that Jesus, as the battle lines are drawn up, he extends an invitation to all those on the opposing side to turn to him. And he says, come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Come to me and I will give you forgiveness. Let's not stand in our opposition to Christ, but come to him in faith. Let's bow together. Our Father, we thank you for your mercy to us. We thank you that you have saved us. We thank you for the clarity of this passage that shows that Jesus indeed is the king, the one that we owe our allegiance to. I pray, Father, for those here and those listening, that you would do your work in them, Father, that they might side with Christ, that they might not be hardened in their unbelief any longer. May they recognize their sin, recognize their obstinacy, and may they turn to the only place of hope in life. And that's in Jesus Christ, your Son. We thank you for the life that is revealed through your word. Father, work in each one of our hearts, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.